If you've been a part of the Applewood family for any time, you know that, that every year at this time we participate in Covenant World Relief Ministry. And so there is an envelope in your bulletin this morning, and, and that is for you should you choose to, uh, to give a gift to, to the ministry of Covenant World Relief. It is an amazing ministry. It, uh, it reaches uh, people groups that are facing incredible need all around the world. And uh, your gift of, of any amount is just a blessing each year. It's just so much fun as a church family to be able to contribute to that. And, and so what we typically do is if you are going to be with us on uh, Wednesday night for Thanksgiving Eve service, and you want to bring a gift, you can bring your envelope and, uh, and give it that night. Some of you uh, with young children perhaps have been using the, uh, the can bank, and you can bring that on Wednesday night as well. Uh, if you're not going to be with us Wednesday night, you can bring it next Sunday or, or Sunday after. We, just, we try to collect the offering over the course of, oh, probably two to three weeks here, and then we will send it off to Covenant World Relief. And to be a part of Covenant World Relief is to be reminded of how much we have for which to be thankful. Sarah and the kids reminded us that this morning. In, in just uh, small ways, uh, the list is endless. And I think, perhaps more than anything else, that Thanksgiving, having an attitude of, of gratitude, is, is something that is distinguishing about the people of God, something that, that can certainly set us apart as followers of Jesus. You may know the name Sean Acor. He is a, a psychologist, a fairly prominent psychologist who teaches at Harvard. And he suggests that we can train our brains to become more grateful by setting aside just five minutes a day for practicing gratitude. Now, you know me. Anything that has to do with training my brain, I'm, I'm on it. I'm on it. He, uh, he cites a one-week study in which people were asked to take five minutes a day at the same time every day to write down three things they were thankful for. They didn't have to be big things, but they had to be concrete and specific. Gives examples. I'm thankful for the delicious Thai takeout dinner I had last night. Or, I'm thankful that my daughter gave me a hug. Or, I'm thankful that my boss complimented my work. The participants simply expressed thanks for three specific things at the same time every day. Now, at the end of one month, the researchers followed up and found that those who practiced gratitude and even those who stopped after that first week, they were happier and less depressed. After three months, those who had done it for a week were still more joyful and content. And after six months, researchers found them still happier, less anxious, and less depressed. Now, here's one more thing. Medical research is finding that gratitude doesn't just make you feel better psychologically, actually good for our health. Studies show that it can lower your blood pressure, improve immune function, and facilitate more efficient sleep, lead to better heart health. And here's my favorite. Having a daily gratitude practice could actually reduce the effects of aging to the brain. So there you go. Start being thankful and your brain stops aging. 
I'm in. I'm in. Even more importantly, I would say that giving thanks is also really good for our spiritual lives. I think that uh, God has wired us in many ways to, to need to give thanks for something to someone. And as we strive to be people who are thankful in life, no matter the circumstances, giving thanks to him is an affirmation, ultimately, that we believe that he is the one who is in control of our lives. He reigns over the circumstances of life, the good, the difficult, everything in between, and that we trust in his good character, that nothing is a part of our lives that is not filtered through his loving, fatherly hands for our good and his glory as we respond in thanksgiving. Man, isn't that where we want to grow to, to be, to be those people who recognize that giving thanks is a way of affirming who God is and recognizing that our lives are not an accident. The circumstances of our lives are not accidents or, or incidental, but that we have a God who is big enough and great enough that he is, he is weaving all of those things together for a good and purposeful plan in the lives of those who love him and trust him. And he then receives great glory through our lives as we respond appropriately. So this morning we want to wrap up our series on the Apostles' Creed. And we're going to look at the last two statements this morning. And then we're going to finish up this morning, I, just a little bit differently perhaps, um, by looking back at the rest of the Creed we're going to read it together one last time, and then we're going to, we're going to pause at the end of each slide, and we'll come back to this, uh, to reflect for just a moment or two on some of the truths that we've learned and how that is reason for being thankful. Seemed like a good way to end Thanksgiving uh, Sunday, or I should say the Sunday of Thanksgiving week. Now, if you were here last Sunday, you know that we spent all of our time on the forgiveness of sins. It's because we're so sinful that we needed to talk about the forgiveness of sins a lot. That is not true. I have lied. And last Sunday I lied. And you know that I apologize to Allie and Phil because I didn't go where I had intended to go. And it seemed appropriate that, you know, we were dealing with forgiveness of sins because it gave them an opportunity to forgive me. You know? <laughs> As Allie was thinking if not grumbling under her breath, he's done it again. So it was for your good, Allie. Spiritual growth, <laughs> spiritual growth. Now, the earliest documents of the Apostles' Creed end with the first statement of these last two, the resurrection of the body. It's not in all of the early documents, but in some of the later documents into the third and fourth century, we find added to some of those versions of the Apostles' Creed, life everlasting. And it doesn't seem, as best we can tell, doesn't seem that it was intended so much to be a separate statement, but really more of a clarification of the first statement. We believe in the resurrection of the body, and that's going to be in the life everlasting. That's sort of a clarification statement. Now, there's, there's evidence in some of the earliest literature 
that was circulated amongst believers and just in other correspondence that, that historians uh, have the opportunity to read, that, there were, uh, that among the Christians there was, uh, there was some concern. You remember Lazarus, the story of Lazarus. Jesus raised him from the dead. You remember the story of Eutychus, young man who fell out of the window when Paul was going on and on and on in one of his lengthy sermons, and he died. And Paul cried out to God and, and laid on that young man, and God brought him back to life. Now, what did Lazarus and Eutychus both have in common? What's that? They were dead. But they died again. That is such a bummer. And as silly as it might sound, there is manuscript evidence that amongst the Christians in certain circles, there was concern that as these guys died again and are no more, what does the resurrection of the body mean? Are we going to be more than Lazarus? Are we going to be more than Eutychus? One scholar says, it's evident that many people wanted more than assurance that they would simply one day rise from the dead. Because their thought was, well, we could rise from the dead, but then does that mean that we die again along the way somewhere? So then you begin to understand perhaps the insertion of that final statement. Life everlasting. Nothing worse. I can imagine that experiencing the excitement of resurrection personally, being brought back from the dead and then facing death again. Now there's another important observation that has to do with the Greek or Hellenistic culture into which Christians were were, uh, were living out their faith. The Greeks believed in life after death. But life after death for, in, in, in the Greek mindset was always about the soul. We've mentioned before that kind of platonic dualism, that idea that, that humans are body and soul, that the spirit is always good, and that the body, things of, of matter, they are of little value or insignificance. So the belief in the resurrection of the body was another way in which Christians expressed their understanding of a complete restoration of God's creation. Does that make sense? God created us with a body. We're not, we're not spirits, as I heard one, uh, I was listening to a speaker earlier in the week, he said, we, we're not spirits who somehow needed a body to be legitimate. But in fact, humans are embodied spirits. It's, it's a part of the design. It's a part of, of God's creation. And so God created us with bodies. We are, we are people of the flesh. That's what it means to be human. It wasn't a mistake. It was by design. So he created us with a body. Then Jesus, what have we learned in the creed? He came to earth in a body. He died in that body. He rose again in that body. And he ascended to heaven 
in that body. There's a theme here, right? Bodies are important. And I believe that Jesus is going to return for his people in that same body in which he left. When the Apostle Paul writes to the believers in Thessalonica, he tells them that when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will rise first. I think to understand that, we have to think in terms of bodies. I think that's a statement about the body. Christians embrace the idea that the human soul was housed in a body and that to have a body is the truest expression of humanity as God created it. See, the Greeks felt like the the spirit was the truest form of humanity. And to be set free from the body was to to achieve what what humans longed for, to to be free from the captivity of their body. Now, no doubt about it, there are times in our lives when we feel like the body is holding us captive. And in our honest moments, we have times when we think, boy, heaven's looking better all the time. Oh, but wait, I'm going to have a body there too. So the Christians have always affirmed the importance of the body. The human soul is housed in a body. There's evidence too that early believers took a lot of grief over this belief from some of their Greek and other Gentile Roman uh, friends and neighbors. People would inquire about those who died at sea, bodies eaten by the critters in the sea, those who were burned, those who were torn to pieces. Questions were always asked, well, so, so what of them? You know, are, are they going to arrive in heaven you know, missing body parts? Uh, I'm not kidding. There's, it, it's in the literature. Uh, they obviously took a lot of grief for this belief because it was distinct. And it was, it was against the culture of the day. But Christians believed that the final resurrection of the body was as mighty an act as the creation of the body. That God who made all things out of nothing would have no problem raising the bodies of the dead no matter their condition. (laughs) I was with a pastor friend this week who said, I got a call from someone who I haven't talked to in a long time. And there was no hello, there was no how have you been, there was just this question. Do you believe that cremation is wrong? He said, I just kind of did like, like, what in the world? (laughs) Where? Where is this coming from? Who am I talking to? And, and there is that sense. Uh, there, are, there are groups of, of Christians who believe that, that cremation is wrong because it, it's sort of linked back to, to pagan people groups who, who burn uh, the dead. Frankly, I, I think it's, it's an argument from silence. Uh, I don't think the scripture really condones or condemns one way over the other. And I stand with the early believers that God who made all things out of nothing will have no problem raising the bodies of those who died missing pieces. He can, he can put all that back together. I just feel really confident about that. <clears throat> and I have to tell you that the older I get, the more beautiful this theory becomes. Yeah. 
it's just like, yeah, I'm, 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 yeah, God's, God's going to redo this. This is going to be good. Okay. Also worth noting that some versions of the creed use the definite article. So we've expressed that we believe in life everlasting. Some of the versions of the creed talk about the life everlasting. No doubt the early followers of Jesus wanted to make sure that, that others understood that this is not just any life everlasting, that the life that we're talking about is the life for which God's people are created. Now, that might not make a whole lot of difference to us, but, but the early believers lived in a culture where most people believed in life after death. And God's people wanted to be clear this is, this is the everlasting life. This is the life for which humanity is created and it is the life that is attained through the atoning work of Jesus and, and faith and trust in him. Not just any life after death view would do for the early believers. John 10, you remember Jesus talked about being <clears throat> the good shepherd and and coming to give life to his sheep, abundant life to his people, to his followers, those who would believe in him. And we get to understand that statement through the larger theological lens of redemption. Jesus died so that we might live, and not just live any life of our choosing, but to live the life to live the life for which we were created in relationship with God, in intimacy with God, in, in finding a lifetime and an eternity of the wonder of who God is. Yahoo! Thanks, Zach. Thanks. Just, just needed that. Needed that. So, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, Jesus said, I have come to bring abundant life, that specific life, life in relationship to the one for which we were made. And yeah, that does begin now. I don't think that's just an eternal statement by Jesus because eternity has begun now in this life. We are, we are living in it and we'll live into it. But there is in one real sense a profound difference between the abundant life that we will experience when all fallenness and human brokenness has been redeemed and God restores all things. Wow. So let me ask you this morning, how's your thankfulness level? How is your thankfulness level? Man, these, these things need to, uh, need to jazz us up. But, but isn't it true we're, we're just we're earthbound creatures? That's all we know. We are, we are earthbound, and that, I think that's one of the, the gifts of the Spirit, as we have talked about the purpose and the role of the Spirit, is to, is to remind us of who Jesus is, to remind us of what he has done for us, to remind us of who he has called us to be, to remind us of the promises that he has made, to remind us of God as our Father, uh, not to help us live a better life, although that may flow out of some of the other things that the Spirit is bringing into our lives. And 
one of those truths is to remind us that this is not all that there is. That there is something far better that lies ahead. And yet, it's so challenging to, to get our minds around that because this is all that we know. So, let's stand this morning. We're going to read from Colossians chapter 2. Paul has been talking about his suffering for Christ. Go ahead, you can stand on up. He's been talking about his suffering for Christ in order to see the gospel spread and, and to the Gentiles. The mystery of the ages Paul has just referred to a couple of verses prior to reading our text that God has included Gentiles in the plan of salvation and these Colossians who are reading Paul's words are a part of that group. And so here comes Paul's exhortation then based upon being recipients of so great a salvation. Let's read it together. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Amen. Sisters and brothers, the word of God for us. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So Paul wants the Colossian believers to to push ahead in their faith. Push ahead in the faith. Those words are words of actions. Continue to live in him. There's there's intent, there's there's purpose. And and it seems to me that, that one of the gifts of the Spirit of God in our lives is to give us the power and to give us the focus each day, every day, to be intentional and purposeful about living into what it is that we say we believe. Now, I don't know about you, but I get distracted by the stuff that life brings to me every day. You know, some of them are responsibilities and some of them are just distractions that really could wait, depending on the day, depending on the situation. The Spirit of God is, we know this, God's gift to give us that ability to continue to live in Him as Paul exhorts the Colossians. How is that possible? Well, one, because we have the Spirit of God who lives in us, and it's because of the grace of God that opened our eyes that we became, to use Paul's words, rooted in Him when we believed, and then we become built up in Him together. It's easy to forget that all of the pronouns that Paul uses when he's addressing these churches in these letters, they're they're plural pronouns. Yes, we are individuals. But for Paul... His understanding of life as the body of Christ 
It is just so much a part of his thinking and who he is that he is rarely talking about individuals unless he names them. And he does name them here and there throughout some of his letters. But he is referencing the church, God's people gathered together in one place, in the city that, that, that the church is named after. And so strengthening in the faith. Did you notice that? Strengthened in the faith as you were taught. He doesn't say your faith. In reference to the word faith in the Greek is also the idea of trust or belief. It's oftentimes interchangeable. He's not saying you're strengthened in your faith. He uses the definite article, strengthened in the faith as you were taught. So what is the faith? The faith is what God's people believe. Think Apostles' Creed as these things begin to circulate and formulate amongst the people. Vic, can we put that next slide up? Strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. So I just want you to turn to your neighbor for a couple of minutes and say, what do you think Paul means by overflowing with thankfulness? You might have a theological answer. You might have an image in your head. doesn't matter. What is Paul getting at? Overflowing with thankfulness. See what your neighbor thinks. All right. Let's talk about your, your, your definition or your image. What do you think Paul's getting at here? Overflowing with thankfulness. What's that about? What do you think? How we live. Okay. Okay. Sort of overflow. Yeah. There's that word. But do you ever find, it's a miracle, if we realize what Christ has done, we have access to that. Do you ever find that you don't overflow? I overflow with other things. You know, overflowing is not necessarily always a good thing. <laughs> overflowing water in the basement, bad idea. You know, overflowing food on Thanksgiving Day, most of us would say that's a great idea. You know, it's, it's the context. Overflowing. Good answer, good answer. What else did you come up with? Cornucopia, okay. Yeah, yeah. The, the word that Paul uses here it simply means abundant. It also means beyond the standard or what is normal. Now, you remember Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, For I tell you, Sermon on the Mount, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses, there's the word, translated surpass in that text, unless your righteousness overflows, unless your righteousness is beyond the standard or the norm, unless your righteousness is abundant, Jesus is saying, surpasses what? That of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh my. At that point, a lot of folks were thinking, we're in big trouble here. Because... The Pharisees 
were the people who, who lived to protect the law. That was the reason for the existence of the Pharisees. It was, it was, their, it was their love and their passion to protect the law because the law represented God's holiness and his word to his people. And, and they wanted no one to break the law. And yet, as we know, Jesus wasn't terribly encouraging to the Pharisees because we understand that so often what the Pharisees said and what they did were, were far apart. Their desire to protect the law became an enormous burden. And the evidence that we see in the, in the New Testament is that it turned them into to legalistic, joyless guardians of the law into which Jesus stepped into their circle and said, no, 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 you got it all wrong. And because they were so zealous for what they believed was right, they couldn't see or hear Jesus' words about being the fulfillment of the law. Paul wants the Colossians to be overflowing with thankfulness. Now, it's in the original language, it's, it's, it's an active, what's referred to as an active voice. It's not passive. It's not something that happens to us, but it's something that comes out of us as we are living in response to what has been done. It carries the idea that God's people are responding to the actions of God on behalf of his people. And that, my friends, is not just a little thankful. That's not just normal thankful. That is, that is over-the-top thankful. That is thanksgiving that, that just bubbles out of us. Gratitude for what God has done. And consequently, that makes us people as we both individually cultivate thankfulness, might be that five minutes a day that the researchers talked about. I think more effectively is that we spend time together intentionally reminding one another of what God has done for us. You know, be the together people that he has created us to be. Encouragements and reminders of, of what God has done. Paul doesn't want a day to go by for the Colossians where they don't remember and rehearse the truths of the faith, reminding one another of what God has done. So from the very beginning, we've said that the Apostles' Creed was never intended to be a systematic theological statement. Uh, there's, there's so much more to, to what Christians believe in, in, in terms of of the expansion of, of all these, these doctrines. But, but remember, it was intended to be a statement of, of what's important, of what's essential in terms of Christian belief, used to teach new believers what do Christians believe. It was intended to be a reference for believers to use, as we've said, in the marketplace. Someone wants to know, you know, I, I've heard that Christians are a little crazy. What is it they believe? Well, let me tell you, well, that's affirmation. You are crazy for what you believe. But we've also said that we're not in this alone. 
there is a large company of folks who have believed these essential truths, truths that provide quick, distinct answers to non-believers, should they want to know, but also truths when rehearsed among the people of God that provide encouragement and strength and result in overflowing joy at who God is and what he has done. Okay, so let's just stand together one final time and read the Apostles' Creed. One last time together. And we're going to pause at the end of probably every screen. I think maybe we'll pause at the end of Lord on this one. And what I'd love for you to do is if something pops into your head, something that you remember that we've learned together, something that jumps out at you about the beauty of the statement, just share it with us. Doesn't have to be, you know, a, a theological system, just words of thanks for a truth that you see in the statement. Let's read what we believe about God. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Okay, let's stop there. Let's stop there. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, still Son. See anything there that Makes you thankful? No. <laughs> like every word. Remember, we talked about the importance of God being identified the, as, as the Father. You know, all the, the ancient religions believed in an almighty God. Well, the Christians were no different, but they believed that their almighty God chose to reveal himself as a Father. And, and that was important. There was great encouragement to some. There was great challenge to others because they didn't live in a system where fathers were notoriously kind and gentle and loving. And yet, Christians believed that about God, the Father revealed in Jesus. Okay, let's, let's read on about Jesus, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Okay, what do you see there? Humanity. Oh, I'm so glad you haven't forgotten that. Yeah, it's all about the humanness of Jesus. Remember, he didn't just appear to be human. Very important in the life of the early church. And as they began to formulate more Christological kinds of statements, uh, there were some significant verbal battles. Sometimes it went beyond that, unfortunately, about the nature of Jesus that if Jesus was not human, then he really could not be the perfect sacrifice for broken humanity. And he was crucified, and he died, and he was buried. What's that all about? Anybody remember? Once again, he was really human. He died. He died a human death. And he was buried, like humans are after they die. Okay, next slide. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. Anything here that uh, prompts you to be thankful? Woohoo! Third day, he rose again from the dead. Descended into hell. Remember, we just decided that that is probably best or most honestly understood as a one other statement about the humanity of Jesus, he went into the place of the dead. He went where dead people go because he was really dead. But yet, there is that sense in which later 
developments in the church might have placed into that statement the one that we all love, and that's the idea of Jesus arriving in hell and pronouncing victory over the powers of darkness. So that's a fair reading, but a later reading in the life of the church. Okay, what's our next slide? He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. What do you see there? What gives you joy, thanksgiving there? Bright future. Say again, what are some of the, what are the other things? His sacrifice was accepted. Yes. How about sitting at the right hand of God the Father? You remember what we learned about that one? That's, yes. Thank you, Steve. That was Steve, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's that position of power, that position of counsel, that position of advice. Um, ancient rulers always put their most trusted advisor on their right hand. And there sits Jesus, the human, God-man, at the right hand of God the Father. Okay, what comes next? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Boy, we talked a lot about that one being the, the life of the church, being the gift of God to his people. We talked about the importance of Jesus' instructions to, to wait for the Spirit and how that, that waiting for the coming of the Spirit is symbolically still true for us today as we live out the life of the church you know, we can just go headlong into things and, and, and you know, willy-nilly, here we go. And oops, we never even consulted God and, and gave time to listen to maybe how the Spirit might be leading or prompting us as his people. The Holy Catholic Church, what did we decide that that was? Yeah, messy, there you go. Messy, and yes, the Church of Jesus Catholic, we understand as being sort of universal, this, this large gathering of all kinds and colors and flavors of people who love Jesus. And, and truthfully, that, that may be one of the hardest things for us to get past is because we know ourselves, and different is just different but unfortunately, sometimes for us, different is threatening, different is scary, different can even be wrong in our estimation. But if they are people who are holding to these beliefs of the ancient Catholic Church, then they are our brothers and sisters. The communion of saints. Uh, we're in this together. We're in messy together. And remember, there's, there's an alternative translation that's possible of that one. Remember the sharing of the saints? Uh, some scholars feel like that might have been added along about the 4th century because the church had received sanction from the state. The church had become, though not at the beginning of the 3rd century, it was later towards the end of the 3rd century, that the church then became the state religion of Rome. But early on, it was sanctioned as a legal religion. And with that legal religion came 
power and authority and freedom uh, that sometimes caused God's people to forget the responsibility that they had before Christ to, to share and to, to share life and, and possessions and resources that was so distinctive of the early church. Forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, life everlasting. Brothers and sisters, if you go away from this series and forget everything that we've learned, promise me that you'll focus in on forgiveness of sins. That may be, in, in, in many ways, it may be one of the most practical, heartfelt statements in the entire creed because I think it addresses the human condition. And so what we get to do now as God's people is go live our lives every day uh, mindful of these truths, recognizing that our God always goes before us. He's always present with us when we arrive. And he's at work long after we leave. And his grace is always stirring and drawing hearts to recognize that, oh, this life is not all there is. There's something I need. There's something more. Yes, Jesus has provided forgiveness of sins. He has provided the answer to, I think, the aching of the human spirit. So, praise team, come on up and we're going to pray. And look at us. We're standing and ready to sing. Father, we are so grateful for this time that you have given us in your word in these weeks, um, our, our intention, our hope, our prayer has been all along that, that we, we won't be a people who are, who are lifting up uh, a, a creed to, to levels of biblical authority. We are not. Creeds only have power and authority when they are based upon the truth of your word. And we are grateful that there is much in this Apostles' Creed that, that obviously highlights what was so important and essential to early believers. And, and they are our family. And so we have wanted to learn from them and hopefully we will continue to learn from them as we push ahead to be faithful followers of Jesus in an age and in a culture which oftentimes is not all that different from the age and the culture of the early believers. And as we have prayed often, um, if... You, Terry, Lord Jesus, and times get more and more challenging and more difficult. Our prayer is that these distinct truths will strengthen and encourage us and drive us back to the truth of who you are and what you have done for us so that we might be people who stand strong in a world that desperately needs to know who you are. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.